All right, welcome everybody to Pants on Fire, Exposing Ruling Class Lies. And in today's episode, we are once again joined by our comrade Amiad, who writes for the people's world and also has been living and studying in Vietnam for close to, is it 10 years now, Amiad? I've been here 10 years now, yeah, a little over 10 years. Well, we're glad to have you back, and uh, we are going to be talking about some uh, recent developments and also a little bit of background on Vietnam's foreign policy. You published an article in People's World recently about the U.S. efforts to drive a wedge between Vietnam and China as part of the new Cold War strategy. And so uh, I think let's let's start there and um, kind of talk about talk about what's going on with the Biden administration and uh, this this new Cold War. So yeah, first of all, thank you for having me again. It's always a pleasure to be here. Always a pleasure to talk to you. So the new Cold War, as I'm sure most people are aware, is the U.S. trying to maintain its monopolar hegemonic international rule, what they call the rules based order. Um, against a rising China and a uh, multipolar world, you know, with uh, another superpower, another economic power who uh, handles international relations very differently, right? Where the U.S. dictates policies and makes countries follow its uh, its path, its, you know, neoliberal economic path and whatnot. China is willing to trade and work with any country towards mutual benefit. So, it seems inevitable that this is what's going to happen. China's rising and the U.S. is in a state of panic. And uh, what they're trying to do is create as large of a coalition as possible to isolate and uh, and surround China. And Vietnam, being uh, one of the larger countries on uh, that shares a border with China and also shares the strategic border, a maritime border on the, what's called International, the South China Sea, and what's known in Vietnam as the EC. You know, there's been constant effort for more than 10 years now, I think, uh, to try and pull Vietnam into the U.S.'s military uh, sphere of influence. But it's a non-starter. You know, it goes against every the, the underlying philosophy of Vietnamese foreign policy and uh, the core tenets of Vietnamese foreign policy. And it's, it's tough because... As a, a country that is trying to develop into a socialist uh, future, the Vietnamese government tries to maintain relations with with every country. Uh, you know, you point out in your article that they they have to 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 continue to develop. And so, what are some of the ways that that the U.S. could potentially take advantage of that against China? Like how could they, how could they use Vietnam? Because it essentially sounds like that's what they're trying to do is to use Vietnam. Yeah. So you know, one of the the things that uh, it's a lie repeated so often that so many people think it's true already. Um, this idea that the U.S. is going to put international its bases, basically international military bases, on Vietnamese territory because of the the maritime border. You know, right now the U.S. has over 800 bases in other countries that aren't the U.S., uh, many of them currently surrounding China, and none on the South China Sea. So the idea is that uh, Vietnam would present the U.S. an opportunity to place, uh, to base uh, its forces in the South China Sea and surround China on another end, uh, angle. 
And again, I mean, you can read articles in all sorts of periodicals like The Diplomat and uh, newspapers like uh, I think New York Times. They talk about it so much that people think it's happened. But anyone that even knows the slightest bit about Vietnamese foreign policy knows that it's never going to happen because one of Vietnam's core tenets to its foreign policy is uh, it's called the four no's. Um, and one of those no's is no foreign military uh, deployment on Vietnamese territory. Uh, another one of those no's is no entering military alliances. Another one of those no's is no using force against another uh, country. And the last no is no joining one country to go bully another country. So literally everything the U.S. wants goes against those four no's. Hmm. But, you know, these would-be experts in <laughs> uh in these journals in the West or in some newspapers in the West, either they are ignorant of this or they don't care and they assume most readers are ignorant of it, which is why it's so important that we're talking about it today and that they can just keep talking about the idea of U.S. bases here and people are just going to go along with it and hopefully they could will it into existence. Yeah, honestly, I think that a lot of people would would be surprised that they're, that the U.S. doesn't already have military bases there because the u.s has military bases everywhere yeah and you know um there there's some territorial disagreements between vietnam and china and uh the based around um a couple of uh, archipelagos of you know island collection of little islands in the south china sea and china's built military bases on these islands so that's part of why the u.s is so desperate to find a place to station military nearby and um, because of that disagreement, they think they could manipulate Vietnam or use Vietnam. But again, uh, Vietnam is a country that seeks peace above all else and mutual coexistence and peaceful coexistence um, with all countries. Again, those four no's, uh, it, it's just not going to happen. There's not going to be a military, U.S. military presence on Vietnamese territory. Mm -hmm. That was going to be one of my questions about the the territorial disputes for U.S. imperialism, there's a there's a vulnerability that could be taken advantage of if there is some unresolved conflict between China and Vietnam. So you said that th those are those are disputed archipelagos where I'm guessing China China says that it belongs to them and Vietnam says it belongs to Vietnam. Correct. And right now, in practice, there's, you know, Chinese troops on uh, some of the islands and Vietnamese troops on some of the other islands. Um, but both China and Vietnam have agreed to settle the disagreement peacefully. And it's not just China and Vietnam. Um, the Philippines, uh, Malaysia, there's a few countries that dispute, you know, various islands in the South China Sea. And there's a huge overlap between all of these. And Vietnam, through its leadership role in the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, has always pushed that all countries agree that whatever these disagreements are, they will only be settled peacefully. And repeatedly, ASEAN and China have promised to handle this uh, issue peacefully. Mm -hmm. So yes, theoretically, there's something there for the U.S. to manipulate. But, you know, I mean, the, the governments of these countries are much smarter than uh, the American uh, would-be experts would have people believe. They're not so easily manipulated. Um, and also, you know, it's important to note that the history between China and Vietnam goes back thousands of years. And the U.S. looks at, you know, a 50-year window and thinks they can manipulate things. There's all sorts of uh, historical and cultural and economic ties that go back long 
uh, long before any white person even showed up in North America. So I don't think it's going to be possible for them to manipulate uh, the situation to their advantage. Mm-hmm. I would I would imagine that these types of territorial disputes are opportunities for the U.S. to manipulate other countries, maybe that don't have such strong ties uh, towards towards peace and coexistence. The U.S. manipulates, you know, um, countries that lack stability, countries that are isolated, countries um, that are in trouble or desperate in one way or another. A country like Vietnam, which has good relations with almost every country on Earth, is a leader in Southeast Asia, um, is one of the quickest growing economies in the world, is China's largest trade partner and one of the U.S.'s larger trade partners now. I mean, Vietnam is not a country that's just going to be pushed around or manipulated. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing how possibly some of the other countries that may have some territorial disputes that are ongoing with China, the U.S. could come to them and say, look, China is building military bases right up on on your border or in your disputed territory we can help you let us come in and and uh you know join our alliance against china so it, it is a, that's a tricky situation it is so on the one hand it's so a good example that would be the philippines right the u.s um and the philippines they came to some sort of i don't think they used the term agreement but some understanding because technically it's against filipino constitution but Anyways, they're building new U.S. bases on Filipino territory with that in mind. Mm. At the same time, the Filipino government has continued to increase economic uh, ties with China. So even a country that is much more, you know, um, under the American boot, like the Philippines, they're still not as easily manipulated, right? They're they're still trying to play both sides. And uh, no one wants war in this region. The U.S. goes around the world and wants war. You know, the region has been war-free, conflict-free for the most part, right? You have civil strife uh, occasionally in uh, in Myanmar and uh, Thailand, but there hasn't been a war between uh, countries in Southeast Asia in 40 years. And all the countries have prospered during peace. All the economies have grown. The standard of living has risen. And a war would not be popular. It's not not what anyone wants, and no one has anything to gain from it. Only the U.S. would have what to gain from it. Yeah, and I I think it just goes to to show the... The stark contrast between the the unipolar world that the U.S. Uh, strives for and the the multipolar peaceful coexistence, where countries, even countries that may have disagreements, can still coexist and and even form alliances and and partnerships in other areas. Right, and actually, um, the there's a term that's become very popular here. It's the underlining philosophy of the Vietnamese foreign policy. It's called uh, bamboo diplomacy. And uh, one of the reasons that the term, uh, is, they use the term bamboo is because bamboo is strong but flexible, right? It bends in the wind, but always you know stays rooted and uh, it's unbreakable, right? So, you know, Vietnam has its, its uh, strong principles that it's rooted in, you know, national independence, um, socialist future, peaceful coexistence. But at the same time, they're not going to be rigid and forced into an uncomfortable situation, right? Like uh, you have sectarian leftists around the world that would say, oh, Vietnam has betrayed socialism because they trade with capitalist countries. That would be a very dogmatic, rigid way to go about things. And that would only hurt the Vietnamese people who would lose access to 
you know, um, other markets and trade and whatever. So, and, and bamboo is also a traditional metaphor. Um, is that the word I'm looking for? I guess I have used uh, throughout Vietnamese history and Vietnamese culture. In fact, a Vietnamese friend of mine, I was told them about an article I was writing about bamboo diplomacy. And they said, oh, I'm so tired. Everything in my whole life, we, we're the bamboo country, we're the bamboo people. Now we have bamboo diplomacy. It's like, <laughs> it's, uh, but it's very true. You know, Ho Chi Minh wrote about a lot, uh, used bamboo as an image a lot in his writing because throughout Vietnamese history, they've been able to bend and sway and, you know, surrounded by big, powerful countries like China, um, the Mongolian Empire, and, um, you know, never really bend or break. So it's a, a long tradition in Vietnamese foreign policy. And that remains an underlining part of the philosophy of modern Vietnamese foreign policy. Yeah, I, I love that. I love that term and and that uh, the imagery of, of bamboo, because it is such a resilient plant that can grow right. almost anywhere and with very little uh maintenance required if you plant some bamboo in your yard next thing you know you've got like a, a bamboo forest uh it can survive right all the elements and it can be used for so many different things from floors to all kinds of tools fishing poles food is food yeah it can be used for, right? it's a very versatile plant and you know i mean you see the successes of that outlook um during covid for example when there was food shortages around the world vietnam didn't have that because while they do trade and they're part of the international system right they talk about international integration a lot here at the same time they make sure that they can stand on their own two feet and they can self-sustain and you know it's uh the socialist dialectic approach yes you need to be strong internationally but you also need to be strong at home and you can't be strong internationally if you're weak at home and you can't be strong at home if you're weak internationally right so they both have to go hand in hand um, and uh, bamboo diplomacy and Ho Chi Minh's uh, uh, thought on diplomacy are based in those dialectics. Yeah, there's a there's a quote in, uh, in one of your articles that talks about Ho Chi Minh and how he taught that while Vietnam has to be resolute in its pursuit of independence and self-reliance and national sovereignty, it also should never be wavering in international solidarity. And point out that some might see those two as complete opposites and how can you have both but a deeper understanding of marxism leninism shows that those two are dialectically united right right and actually I, since writing that article i've come across another one of ho chi Minh's writings through another project i'm working on and uh he talks about strong patriotism that the vietnamese people have to have it at the time to fight the french and he talked about while you have to love your country and you have to be able to fight and die for your country and whatnot, you can never fall off the edge and become a fascist and right become a nationalist. Mm -hmm. And what keeps you from falling off the edge is the dialectic of the internationalist because it's not even though you love your country fiercely and you fight for your country, you're still part of the international movement. And that's what prevents you from uh, falling off the edge into nationalism. It's Ho Chi Minh was a very brilliant man uh, who understood dialectics very well and. And it's so funny because you read the things he writes and it's like, oh, yeah, that's so obvious. But it's not. You know, it took him to write it. And once you, you read it, it seems obvious, but it's not. It, it's really quite incredible. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, to go back to um, what you were saying earlier about the, the sectarian and the, and the dogmatist views of the betrayal of socialism. And uh, you point out there was a quote that. Vietnam is a socialist-oriented country in a capitalist-dominated world. I mean, this is 
I think this is really important for people to understand is that it's kind of hard right now to just be a a, a pure dogm dogmatic type of uh, socialist government because you would be completely isolated from the international stage. Right. And Vietnam would, there would be all sorts of resources that Vietnam would be lacking. The, only the people would suffer and they wouldn't be able to build socialism, right? Marxists above all have to be materialists and we have to live in the real world. You know, we don't, we don't believe in, what do the Trotskys call it, right? A never ending revolution or something like that, right? For, uh, where, you know, you have to keep fighting until everything's this pure revolution and you can't ever, we understand that we have to make things better for the masses now when we have the opportunity, right? So Vietnam is part of the international system and they can't wait for, uh, you know, every country to have its revolution and they need to make things better for the Vietnamese people now and, and use that wealth that they can build to build socialism. I think one of the, one of the examples that you use that, that, that kind of shows this, this form of diplomacy is the 2019 summit between the U.S and the DPRK where yeah. Vietnam hosted that event. Vietnam is, uh, has somewhat, I guess, uh, would you say friendly relations with the U.S.? I mean, I guess they Vietnam has relations with both, yeah. both countries. Yeah, the U.S. and Vietnam are friendly. And I think uh, Vietnam's proud of the fact that they're able to be friends with a country that they have such a difficult history with. Uh, because again, it shows a, the true friendly nature of the approach to, you know, uh, relationships here in Vietnam, but also the materialist, uh, non-dogmatic way of going about things. And it's, the U.S. is a major trade partner um, and uh, the Vietnamese people benefit from that. So Vietnam is able to maintain good relationship with both the DPRK and the U.S. And at the same time, I think I also use the example of Cuba and the U.S. Cuba and Vietnam are the closest of friends, the closest to countries, you know, that you can ever be. They talk about the special relationship all the time. Vietnam sends rice to the Cuban people all the time. And, and you know, and they, they can maintain those two relationships at the same time. It's, that, it's the bamboo, exactly. Those are both great examples to exemplify that, that, that idea that you don't have to just dig your heels in and be stubborn and rigid which is what the U.S. has been doing, especially with Cuba for the past 60 plus years with the uh, right. this illegal embargo. Literally every country besides Israel and the U.S. has voted against it. And the U.S. refuses to change its change its mind and change its position. And we see with the dogmatic policy, A, it hurts the Cuban people and also it hurts the U.S. people, right? The U.S. people lose all uh, access to all sorts of um great things coming out of cuba like the lung cancer vaccine and and the uh the, the medical doctors that cuba sends around the world for uh, for free to help people in need and all that sort of stuff right so um everyone loses that when you, you dig in like that yeah and so this uh this the the forming of of relations with with other countries obviously it's that's uh an important part of internationalism and of building socialism and that's that's the part that i think people some some people don't don't get is that these these are countries vietnam and china that are working to build socialism they are in the process of of building socialism and 
while capitalism is still dominating the world, you kind of have to play, you kind of have to play the game for lack of a better phrase. If you want to have, you know, material benefits, uh, you got to be able to set aside some differences and be able to work with, with anyone. So you talk about also the, the relations with both the Palestinian people and also relations with Israel. Could you uh, elaborate on, on that? Yeah, um, Vietnam and Israel have a, a trade agreement that was signed recently, and they've done some trade over the last couple of decades uh, since I think Vietnam established relationship with Israel, I think it was either 94 or 96. And, you know, there was, uh, in the beginning, it was agricultural technology and then uh, communication technology. And now there's a lot of trade between the two countries. Um, at the same time, uh, Vietnam has been a staunch supporter of the Palestinian people, always pressing uh, the UN uh, to support the Palestinian cause and condemn Israel. Uh, the longest serving ambassador, the what they call the dean of the diplomatic corps in Hanoi, is the Palestinian ambassador. He, you know, always, he actually just wrote a book about his love of Vietnam and the connection between the Vietnamese and the Palestinian people, right? So, Again, it's another example of the bamboo or dialectic approach to and non-dogmatic approach to international relations. Because if Vietnam was to not have a relationship with one, either the Palestinian or the Israelis, who would that be helping? No one. But it would be hurting the Vietnamese people, for sure. And it would be hurting the Palestinian people. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, a much more materialistic and... Um, Sometimes it doesn't feel as good, right? Being dogmatic and being pure, that's a very uh, American individualistic way of think- thinking, you know, it's like, oh, I'm going to be right. I'm going to sit here in the corner by myself and I'm going to be the most right while I sit here in the corner. Mm-hmm. But who are you helping? I and mean, you're not engaging with anyone. You're not improving anything. You're not improving your case. You're not spreading your cause. Um, but it might feel good, but it's not helping anything. And that's something uh, Vietnam is very good at doing. They could say, okay, we're not going to trade with capitalist countries, but Who's that going to benefit? How's that going to help anyone? Right. So when uh, when exactly did Vietnam start to open up trade with with all these different countries? Was that in the '90s or more recent? So Vietnam started to change its uh, economic system in the early '80s, and it was more uh, it was codified in '86. Is what's known as uh, Noi, uh the what do they call it in English? Rectification, I think they translate it in English. But it was basically the introduction, the introduction of what's now called the socialist-oriented market economy. And part of the the changes in Doi Mai was what they call uh, international integration and um, developing a relationship with all countries. At the same time, um, in 1986, Vietnam was still under embargo from the U.S. So Vietnam was limited uh, in its international uh, integration at that time. And once the U.S. lifted its embargo in 95, uh, I'm pretty sure it was Clinton. I was pretty sure it was 95. Then Vietnam started to establish um, relationships with more and more countries. So the uh, embargo that uh, was in, I'm assuming that was in place since the uh, Vietnam War. And then it was lifted in the 90s. Was that similar to the embargo against Cuba now where it was sort of like pressure from the rest of the world to... Well, interestingly, it wasn't since the Vietnam War. What happened was at the end of the Vietnam War, Vietnam was, again, pragmatic as ever, was very eager to establish relations with the U.S. at the door. Okay, the war's over, you're defeated, now let's trade and, you know, to the mutual benefit of both our countries. And the U.S. 
didn't want to, and the U.S. owed Vietnam all sorts of money, you know, compensation from the war, and they promised to help Agent Orange victims, and the U.S. didn't want to follow through on any of that stuff. But Vietnam kept pressuring it. Then came the um, the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, and they started the war with uh, Vietnam, and Vietnam invaded Cambodia, and the U.S. took the Khmer Rouge aside, and so the embargo was placed then, um, and then it lasted until the yeah until the nineties, which at that time also coincidentally or not coincidentally, but throughout that same period, up until the 90s, the U.S. continued to recognize the Khmer Rouge as the legitimate government of Cuba, of, Cuba, of Cambodia, throughout that whole time, even though, you know, they'd already been uh, kicked out by the, the Vietnamese. Was there any resistance at the time to to lifting the embargo? Was it all at once, or was it more like a kind of a lift a little bit here, a little bit there over time? There was mostly lifted at once, um, but the, uh, what did they call it? The embargo on, I think they call it lethal weapons or deadly weapons, however they termed it. That lasted until the late knots. Um, that lasted longer. And I think it was only fully lifted in the early 2010s. So like there was no military trade. It was never as extensive as an embargo as Cuba. It was very extensive, uh, you know, but just the Cuban embargo is so extreme. But it, it wasn't that extreme, but it was it was crippling. Vietnam in 1986 was one of the poorest countries in the world. And so during that time, during this time when trade with the United States started to open up and, and those restrictions were lifted, what was Vietnam's relationship with, with China like? Uh, so Vietnam and China had had a, again, based around the, the war in Cambodia, it had a small border clash in 1979 then had uh, cut off relations with each other until I believe again it was early 90s, 92, something like that. Uh, Vietnam and uh, People's Republic of China re-exchanged diplomats and uh, ambassadors and since then has not had you know any incidents uh, military-wise whatsoever, despite again the narrative that you'll hear in the West that the two countries are each other's throats. Uh, they haven't been. In fact, uh, the two the two governments the two parties do so much together there's uh, they have so much in common and uh there was a uh what was it two years ago there was an event marking the anniversary of the reestablishment of the relations or, or something like that and they put out a communique calling it a special relationship of comrades and brothers hmm. you know like above all the kinds of relationships in the late in the 80s and uh, early 90s there was some difficulty but vietnam and china have come a very long way since then so you talk about in, in your article that the relationship between China and Vietnam and it's classified it's classified as a comprehensive strategic cooperative partnership, which is the strongest relationship category in contemporary Vietnamese diplomacy. So with that as as the uh, the highest or the, the strongest category, what are the other categories and where does the U.S fall into uh like in, in category does the u.s fall now okay uh i well, i can't answer this by heart i can't remember there's like strategic partnerships comprehensive partnerships um there, there's all different ways of mixing the same amount of words in different orders and I, I don't remember exactly which but um the u.s i think is uh it would be like a third or fourth tier partnership hmm um and you know there's talk about a yet to be scheduled biden visit in the next few weeks to hanoi in the hope to sign what they would call a strategic partnership 
the U.S. has been pushing for the signing of a strategic partnership for a long time. In fact, I was at an event once where there was uh, the soon-to-be at the time Vietnamese ambassador to the U.S., and then there was uh, someone from the U.S. Embassy and someone from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and they were just following this guy around saying, oh, we hope to find a strategic partnership. We hope to sign a strategic partnership. We hope to sign it. Like, it was ridiculous. Um, but anyway, so the U.S. has been pushing this for a long time, and it hasn't happened yet for various reasons. Uh, but among the reasons, you know, I, I, I'm an editor at a, the Political Theory Journal here in Hanoi, and there was an article that talked about it that when Vietnam says strategic partnership, they mean trade and they mean cultural exchanges and all sorts of things like along those lines. And when the U.S. says strategic partnership, it means military, it means war, it means weapons. Mm -hmm. um, and so, it, you know, they're the two countries can't decide on, <laughs> can't agree on what those two, what these terms mean, and therefore it's, it's hampered the ability to sign uh, any such agreement. Yeah, it sounds like this is something that's been kind of floating around for a while, that uh, obviously yeah. the U.S. wants to elevate its relationships with Vietnam, but yeah, for for what purpose is the, uh, that's the, uh, that's the important it, it, part. It's funny because like also Vietnam has strategic partnerships with other countries like South Korea and um, I can't think of that, maybe Thailand. Anyway, they have the same level that the U.S. wants to sign with other countries. And it's not a military agreement with any country. Vietnam doesn't have military agreements with other countries. Mm -hmm. But in the U.S. mind or in the U.S. Uh, vocabulary is another way to put it. If you sign something called the strategic partnership, it's going to be, you know, military focused. Right. Yeah. The, the U.S., it's hard to to even fathom the idea of a strategic alliance that doesn't involve military and uh, and weapons. That's just that's how that's how the U.S. has has done things for such a long time. I guess would you say that's uh, the difference between what uh, what countries like China and Vietnam are are trying to do with what uh, imperialism actually means. Yeah, and there's other things, right? The U.S. when they sign these sort of agreements, they have all sorts of demands they put on the other countries. You know, you have to follow the U.S. interpretation of intellectual property and you know international trade, like as far as generic medicines and things like that. All sorts of neoliberal policies, right? They, if you're going to sign these, even if the U.S. sees the strategic partnership, it's an uh, economic deal, right? When you sign an economic deal with the U.S., the U.S. usually wants uh, countries to cut public spending and have less state-owned companies and invest less in welfare and things like that. And um, Vietnam is, again, not willing to be bullied into those sort of things. So what would what would Vietnam get out of, um, out of such an agreement? Because we, we know what the U.S. wants to get out of it, but what, would, yeah. what benefits would it bring to, to Vietnam? Um, you know, increased access to uh, specific markets, maybe some markets that have been still kept closed to Vietnam, better trade, uh, you know, tariffs or tax policies and things like that. Yeah, it, it would mostly be economic. Perhaps there could be some sort of uh, agreement on um, tourist visa policies between the two countries, although I don't imagine that would be the case because Obama had gotten Vietnam to at one point give Americans one-year tourist visas, which was something Vietnam doesn't do with any other country. And uh, usually when a country gives, two countries will reciprocate visa policies, right? Like if an American right now goes and gets 
uh, tourist visa to China, it's a 10-year visa because Chinese, when they go to the U.S., get a 10-year visa. It's, it's reciprocal. And um, the U.S. never, even after Obama gave the, convinced Vietnam to do the one-year thing, there was never anything uh, uh, in the other direction. And now that, that one-year visa is gone. So, you know, theoretically, that could be something. It really, it's a lot of stuff behind closed doors. And I, I, I couldn't be more specific than that. Mm-hmm. And a side note, and I, watching the the Republican debate last week, which was was just disastrous, but a big topic was war with China, and uh, particularly over over Taiwan. And so I think it's it's really clear where you know both parties in the in the United States, which are really. In, in many ways, the exact same party, but in terms of uh, international relations, at least, the uh, the U.S. imperialist stance is that China must be stopped at all costs. And there, there are some of the uh, war hawk types that are just waiting f- for something to happen with Taiwan so that, that they can just yeah. by sending, sending troops. Yeah, and actually, the ironically... Uh, you know, the U.S. wants to build this uh, coalition of countries surrounding China, where you know, centered around Taiwan. Taiwan and Vietnam's um, dis- uh, maritime disagreement is even more extreme, or um, it's a larger area of territory than uh, the one with the uh, People's Republic of China. There, I, I don't know if you've heard the term the Nine Dash Line, right? It's mm-hmm. this uh, Nine Dash Line into the South China Sea that uh, includes all these islands and whatnot that. China says is theirs and other countries, including Vietnam, disagree. Taiwan has what they call the 11 dash line. It's a much bigger <laughs> chunk of the sea that they claim to be part of, you know, Republic of China. So um, it's very funny to think that, oh, they're going to manipulate Vietnam into being against China and be on Taiwan's side over an agreement that is actually more difficult with Taiwan than it is with China. It, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, it, it, I think just and we've talked before about the uh the sort of the impending decline of US empire and how they are just desperately trying to cling on to cling on to power and if that means go potentially starting a world war so be it it seems to be the attitude it does um and you know they seem to be poking that uh that bear both and the Pacific against China and then in Eastern Europe against Russia. It's a very dangerous game the U.S. is playing, but, you know, they serve the military industrial complex and they have the ruling class and the working class and peasants of the world that are going to get killed. They don't, you know, they don't care. Um, But it's something that Vietnam does care about. And, you know, Vietnam is a very peaceful country in the mind of, you know, Americans that hear Vietnam, they think about the U.S. war here. They think about the dozens of Hollywood movies about the U.S. war here. Um, but that's an anomaly. That Vietnam is not a country that seeks out war. That was a war for independence and national unification. It wasn't a war of aggression and conquest. It wasn't a war of imperialism. Um, Vietnam is not the U.S. The Vietnam, Vietnam wants to be at peace. Vietnam wants to improve itself and develop the socialist path and you know they have goals of being a socialist uh, or ready to build socialism and uh high what do they call it a middle income developed country by 2045 like those are the sort of goals that vietnam has 
It's about bettering Vietnam. It's not about conquest. It's not about war. So if there is a, a world war, I would imagine Vietnam will do everything it can to stay out of it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's about, uh, I think we've covered all of the stuff that I wanted to ask you about. I could go, I could go into probably a lot more questions about imperialism and what, some of the things that the U.S. is going to probably try to do to manipulate the situation, but that would all be speculative, I think, at this point. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens if Biden uh, does end up visiting um, and we could definitely have a meetup, uh, a follow-up uh, conversation after that happens. But I think the most important thing for the listeners today to understand is, you know, the, remember the four no's of Vietnam's foreign policy. Uh, remember the, the image of the bamboo and the principle of peaceful coexistence with all countries. And then whenever you hear whatever the New York Times or the Washington Post or Wall Street Journal is going to say about any Biden visit or the Biden visit that doesn't happen, whatever they're going to say, keep those things in mind because really it's very straightforward and very clear. And the Western media is just 99% of the time very inaccurate when, when talking about the subject. Yeah. And I think that's that's a, that's a really important thing to keep in mind. I am going to post the links to uh, to read more about about those those topics, but just to to know right off the bat, whatever kind of meeting happens, if any meeting happens, that one of Vietnam's four no's, one of their red lines is no military uh, bases or no military alliances on their uh, territory. So that could conflict with uh, some of the red lines the U.S. has. <laughs> right. And as recently, I think it was 20... 20- there was a, a regional meeting of uh, military leaders and uh, the minister, the Vietnamese Minister of Defense. I think it's called the, the Shangri-La Dialogue. Uh, anyways, the Vietnamese Minister of Defense. His whole speech was reiterating the four no's. Um, it's not. It's it's a core principle of uh, Vietnam's foreign policy, and it's just not going to be willed away by U.S. pressure. Yeah, and it's a really tough situation because. The U.S. always has red lines also. I mean, you know, there's there's in some cases almost no room for negotiation, but there's definitely lines that the U.S. is not willing to cross and obviously lines that Vietnam's not willing to cross. But uh, to negotiate and to try to maintain peaceful peaceful relations with this escalation of of tension between the U.S. and China is it's got to be a tough it's going to be a tough thing to to try to negotiate. It does, but um, if any country can negotiate that, you know, Vietnam, if you look back during the, the American War, you know, the, the you had the beginnings and then the eventual Sino-Soviet split, and yet Vietnam managed to continue to be friends and get supplies and help from both countries until Kissinger's visit to China. But for, for a long time, Vietnam was always, you know, able to, be friends with everyone they wanted to be friends with, right? And very Vietnam has such an interesting approach to diplomacy, right? They, uh, I don't know if this is a tangent, but um, you know they place a high emphasis on what they call people-to-people diplomacy and de- developing long-standing relationships uh, between Vietnamese people and people around the world. And 
Um, there's like the Vietnam Union of Friendship Organization that, that really um, uh, works on developing these sorts of relationships. So, uh, you know, for example, one person I know, he's becoming the Vietnamese ambassador to Brazil, but he's been working in people-to-people relations in the Americas for like, 30 years. And now he's going to be the ambassador in the region. And he has all these contacts and friends. And uh, it, it's just a very uh, different way uh, to approach diplomacy than we have in the West where, you know, uh, career CIA or uh, big donors become diplomats and ambassadors. It's um, it's really it's about developing relationships and friendships. And Vietnam is very good at that. Well, we'll have to we'll have to wait and see what happens. It looks like there's the the, the rumor is sometime in mid September is when this this meeting might take yeah. place. And so uh, it's not on any calendar yet, but those those are the rumors. All right. Well, we will uh, we'll keep we'll keep tabs on that, and obviously have you back. Uh, in the in the future to to follow up i look forward to it all right thank you amiad thank you kyle thank you for listening to pants on fire exposing ruling class lies the podcast produced by the international department of cpusa visit our website cpusa.org to learn more about the party Follow us on Twitter at CPUSA Department and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app.